Hello and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today we have a fantastic podcast for you. Uh, we are talking with Larkin Seipel, the DP of Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, Larkin also shot, uh, you know, Swiss Army Man, um, almost every great music video you've seen, you know, This Is America, Childish Gambino, Gold with Chet Faker, you know, the girls rollerblading behind the car. Uh, Smooth Sailing by Queens of the Stone Age, one of my favorite bands. Um, just a whole bu- turn down for what? Just a whole bunch of amazing uh, visual work out of Larkin, and uh, we talk about most of it. Um, I will say we recorded this podcast in April. Uh, <laughs> the movie uh, Everything Everywhere had just come out, but I don't even know if it was like fully in theaters all the way yet. Um, so if there's any anachronisms, anachronisms, if the timelines don't seem to match up with today, that's because we were talking in April. Um, but even so, uh, amazing conversation. Loved it. Larkin's great. Um, and, uh, I think you're going to enjoy this one. So I will let you get to enjoying. Here's my conversation with Larkin Seipel. I was actually at the uh, the screening over at City Walk. Oh, really? Yeah. Awesome. So I, I got I got that little. Uh, it, is the movie being shown in IMAX very much, or is that uh, was that like a special thing? I think that was like a special thing. Um, yeah, it was. I think that was a special thing. It's um, it was a bummer because the dance. We were originally going to shoot the rock sequence on IMAX right. for the film. Um, like that, we were legit prepping for that. And I was pushing it. And then I think a mix of number crunching and like, we can't get IMAX cameras out to the desert. Right. <laughs> like it's going to be too hard. Cause we had, a, we had a crew of like seven that day. Me and the director is like an AC basically. Yeah. Was, the, was the intent just to say you had <laughs> shot that sequence on IMAX or was there a creative reason? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit of both. I think, I think, you know, a lot of the ideas were like, wouldn't it be really dumb yeah. <laughs> if we shot, you know, <laughs> You know, because it was also like like financial incentive was like, it's just two rocks. It's like 200 feet of film. Right. Like, it's just a roll. Like, let's just grab it and knock it out and we can say we shot on IMAX. Um, I think that'd be really funny for for this film. Um, And we were going to shoot like Super 8 and 16 mil originally at one point, too. Um, We were prepped for it. And then, you know, on the day when we did all the flashbacks, we had five locations in one day. And it was like Kinky Universe, then like the Wushu Universe, and then like Run Down an Alley, shoot that six times of different variations. And it was like, okay, we're not going to switch cameras yeah. and switch to film stocks at this point. What did you say? 36 day shoot turns into like a 200 day shoot real fast. Oh, yeah. No, it was, yeah, even 36 felt short. Yeah. <laughs> did you, you said, we're kind of jumping ahead, but I might as well just ask right now. You said you shot like 10 different sets of lenses in like six formats. Yeah, we shot. Yeah. We think we did 16, nine, four, three, one, eight, five, two, three, five, two to one. Um, and then there's like weird, like weird formats in the middle, but I think so probably wasn't necessarily 10 formats, but we went through like the full range and got cute about it and got snarky. Like the hot dog fingers is the Netflix aspect ratio, which is two to one. We, we started out trying to make that look like the, Todd Haynes's Carol. Um, right. And then we were like, this the whole universe is in this one apartment and everything is, if we had done that, we kind of would have lost a lot of the joke 
Just because right. Harold, because Carol is so subjective and like, and the fr- yeah, we were like, no, we should make this a bit more blunt. This, this, the people have hot dog fingers on. Let's, we still got a little funky with the framing, but overall, we we started kind of just leaning in on like showcasing the production design for that world. Um, if you yeah. go back and watch it, everything in there is is hot dog color. There's not another color that exists. It is a very, it is a very pinkish tan uh, apartment. <laughs> hints of red and yellow. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say after? Because normally I start different, but I did that. The film is just so fucking good, but we'll get to that. I wanted to, I did want to start kind of like how we normally start, which is just saying, you know, I, I, I know you, uh, you've said you went to Emerson um, where you kind of didn't meet the Daniels, but you, you, around them and stuff like that. When you were, you know, prior to college and stuff, when you were a kid, were you deep into film? Did you start, you know, as like an engineer or something and then m- move your way in? Or was it kind of always the path? I think we were, I was actually just talking to Daniel Scheinert about this last night. I think um, I was at summer camp and the counselor put on 16 candles. I forget how old I was. And it's like a, like an edgy movie. I think I was maybe 10, maybe nine. And there was like cursing and there was like nudity in it. And I was just shocked. And the counselors were like, it's rated PG. And then I spent the next like two years going to Blockbuster and diving into PG 80s films, trying to like find my version of the R film because I wasn't allowed to watch R rated movies. So then I just started watching a lot more movies and inadvertently some very good films. And then um, as I got older, like my my mom was a, a dentist in the suburbs. And so I would just go to like a cinema, buy one ticket and then see six movies, you know, I'd yeah, remember like walking out of Goodwill Hunting and going into like Phantoms and going into like Speed Two Cruise Control or like seeing Save It Private Ryan and seeing like you know vets like having full meltdowns in the theater things like that. I got I got I kind of just fell into movies just because that's what was around and then I just got into it. You know, as a kid, like you know, if you're around something, that just becomes your thing. Um, yeah. And then you know, eventually I just got nerdy about it and it became my thing. I didn't really like click with the filmmaking process until college. And even when I got there, it's like, I'm a director. And then I was like, I think directors only get to make one film a year. Right. <laughs> I did something else. If I was a cinematographer, I get to work on like 10 films a year. Um, and that sounded a lot better. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely a hard part for uh, well, me, for, for all intents and purposes. But anyone kind of coming up nowadays is uh, like, I've had to be, a, you know, especially for like industrials or just like whatever, even music videos. It's like, and so you're shooting the whole thing. And I'm like, can I, do we have a budget to pay literally anyone else? They're like, no, you have to write it too. I'm like, fucking God. <laughs> juggling, juggling that many jobs sounds like a nightmare, but uh, people do it. Yes, they do. Um, yeah. Could you, uh, so you, you get to Emerson, uh, you're, working on you, you make that not transition to DP, but you're, you're working on, um, becoming a DP, I suppose. What, uh, what were your, did you have any outside inspiration, um, besides just films? Were there other, you know, maybe photographers or maybe music even, or, or anything like that, that was kind of tickling your, your artistic brain? Not really. No, I think, I think when I, when I got to Emerson within a week, I met, a kid named Matt Ardine, and he was like, do you want to work on a movie? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to work on a movie. This is a party. He was like, great. Shooting a feature starting this weekend. And I was like, great. And then he was like, it's all night. So I was like, perfect. And then <laughs> I spent like a month working nights and getting back at 6 a.m. and then going to school at 7. Um, and I had a blast. Um, and I think I, I fell in love with like the camaraderie of what it's like to be in a crew. Like, 
you know, just like hauling sandbags and cable through a forest in the middle of, you know, in the middle of Massachusetts at night and like chain smoking cigarettes with a bunch of other 18 year olds. It was like, it was like, you know, like camp basically. Um, and that's when I started like clicking into like what I liked about filmmaking, which was like a, a bunch of people making a story together. Um, that kind of became like the drug or like the fun part about like just a bunch of people doing something kind of stupid in a weird way or like not stupid, but ridiculous. You know, you have all these people, you know, putting all this time and energy and you cut to like two people at a table, just something very absurd about it. Um, all the, all the effort that goes into something that you hope is going to be great. And then it's film school. Nothing is great. It's all just the worst. Um, but it's the best. I loved going to film school screening as a kid, just like blown away watching other students. Cause also we were, everyone is shooting films still. So just watching people that had nothing to do with cinematography. That was not who they were like watching, like the writer, be the guy that's shooting the short this week and just <laughs> watching him like either fail or like stumble into something that works great. Um, it was kind of like yeah. a weird science experiment. That uh, I, I went to uh, this New York film Academy, like summer program before I went to I college. did too. Oh, word. The one in LA. Mm hmm. Yeah. So uh, did that. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, cause they haven't all shoot 16 for our, like, were we always, we were always shooting 16. Um, there was like an, at that time there was like another program called the digital program. And we were all like, poo, 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 the five D. Um, or no, I guess at that time it would have been a DVX. Um, anyway. Uh, but I just remember when we were in the screening theater at WB showing everyone's films and all of our movies looked kind of the same ish. And then one person who like, uh, what was her name? Adriana. I remember her name. Uh, this is like 20 years ago. Uh, I remember hers looking like a movie, like she exposed <laughs> it correctly. Like she lit it, although we didn't really have lights, but like it, it looked like a movie. And I, and I just remember sitting there and going, wow, okay, it is possible. Cause before that we were all, you know, doing whatever, you know, whatever 18 year olds, 17 year olds do, uh, when they yeah, point the light, at, point a point the light at the actor, right? Yeah. Read it. Right? We can go. We're good. Yeah. So that, uh, that, sort of uh, camaraderie and, and seeing how everyone works together that you're talking about, I think is uh, incredibly important. Yeah. I, we, I think we had one, we had one kid in our program that actually made a good film. I think I made ended up doing like a stupid comedy about two guys running around our apartment complex. And I remember yeah. we were at it and I was using the score from Requiem for a dream. And I thought it was <laughs> yep. really funny because that's like, that was the big movie at the time. And the, the whatever the guy the teacher whatever came up and he was like you can't use the song and I was like no one's ever gonna see it who cares and he was like four other kids are also using this song <laughs> if you <laughs> use it <laughs> they're they're making dramas if you use it as a comedy you're gonna ruin their screening so I had to like I switched it to like the Batman theme or something absurd but it was it was very surreal what you 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 have all these filmmakers and they're all using the exact same references for the yeah. films they're making very much an echo chamber yeah I remember. Uh freshman year of college when the dark Knight came out or like maybe sophomore year. And it was like all the, in the acting class we had to take, everyone did Joker yeah. monologues. It's just like, all right, knock it off. Stop. <laughs> you knocked that off. What was your experience like at knife? Cause you're the first person I met who actually did the exact same like program that I did. Um, I mean, teachers were okay. I mean, it was like a, drug fueled party for 16 year olds and 18 year olds. It was like going to college when you were in high school. It was just a big, like we, 
not drug fueled, but we, you know, it was California. It certainly so felt like, that way. There, there, yeah, yeah. There was like there was booze and pot around, and it was a blast. And you're like living with a bunch of other teenagers and apartments, and like you had a you had the time of your life. I had such a great time. Like, yeah. couldn't get enough of it. We got to make short films. The teachers were pretty instructive. Um, but it was just an excuse to like just. I mean, you're living in California for like a month, like with a bunch of other people, a bunch of other strangers your age. You're just gonna have generally a good time and get into trouble. And even yeah. I think even the counselors are like. Why are we, why are we counselors to like 16, 18 year olds? This is a, like, they're like, they're like maybe two years older than us. Right. Um, um, it was fine. I think, I mean, I, I presume having shot these like weird little 16 mil films that may have actually helped me get in college to be like, Hey, look, I shot something on film back then that felt, that probably felt kind of unique. Um, was it good? I, I'm sure it wasn't. Um, I wish I still had them. They were very silly. Um, it was very much like a last minute thought process of like, I guess I'll make a short film about this and like, just yeah. go for it. And of course, like, I think all the films starred the counselors or like the oh, people really? in you. Yeah. It was like, it was either that or your friends. Like, like only a couple of kids had like the balls to actually cast actors. Most of us were like, what if you just did it? Cause I think I can talk to you. I can't talk right. to a stranger. Yeah. Yeah. I, I ended up TAing. Uh, there for a while for a couple summers and yeah I ended up in a lot of <laughs> yep exactly right um you know you're you're only slightly older than me but can you uh do you remember sort of that transition from needing to shoot film um where that was completely out of reach for making your film and and what that environment was like versus when you know, the DVX came out when digital cinema cameras became a little more approachable and like what that, uh, what you ended up working like then. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a weird, I had just like, I graduated and I had just shot my first short on like 35 mil and like half of those shorts up there was like this ambitious short that like never really got finished. I was super stoked about it and like never really got finished. And I was like 35 looks amazing. Um, and then I worked at a camera house and then I just slowly watched over like next six months. Like this is 2007, like the film cameras just get dustier and like the HVX was coming up and then the lens adapters came out and watching that transition. Um, it was also just like all the short films that I was trying to work on or piece together. Like the idea of shooting on film just started feeling not tangible anymore. Um, the very first commercial I ever shot was like two months after college and uh, it was like a pickup for like a world poker tournament. And it was just like a green, like one shot of like a player, like throwing a card at camera, but it was on like 35 mil. And I was just like terrified. So I'd only shot it once. And I was like, they're like, do you want to prep the camera? And I didn't even know the camera. So I turned and then they would give me like a full rate to prep it. And I was like, no, you can hire someone else. And that's what they're doing. I, I'm just, I'm lost. Um, but that was like the one time I shot film was the first, I'm not even going to call it a commercial. I shot an insert for a commercial. Um, and then I don't think I touched it again until it became like back in fashion. Like it was like shooting an H, started shooting a lot on HVX. Then it was like HVX of adapter. And then it became like, you know, the red one then the red MX. And then um, it took a while for film to become kind of, kind of like, you know, people actually choosing, you know, I had to do that weird cycle of, film as a standard to like, why would we ever shoot film to like, don't we miss film? Isn't film going to make the project better? Um, so I, I just basically was, everyone I was working with was just, you know, 
too broke to even afford film <laughs> for a long time. And it was more just like whoever owned a camera. So we, I owned an HVX, but I never pointed up the money to own a Red or an Alexa, um, which had good, good results and bad results. I definitely lost jobs to Red owners, like at the very beginning of, of when that started happening. Yeah. Does that still, do you think that still happens? Cause I, I, I feel like I could be wrong, but I feel like the sort of buying a red buys you a job era is sort of coming to a close. I think so. I mean, my, my, I think you can make some of my favorite things the longest time were shot on like a 5d that I had done. Um, I mean, now you can buy, you know, an Alexa classic for what? Five grand, six grand. Like seven, I think that yeah, camera, it up. <laughs> that camera still slaps. Like it still looks. It's still like the same chip. Like you can get great looking images with a very not necessarily affordable, but you don't have to. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping we're at a place where people can, you know, get a camera that looks decent. Even like the C3. Like most of the cameras, again, once you throw them into the color grade too, like it's minutia you're talking about. At that right. point, like you, like you can get a fully functional film camera. Even the Black Magic looks great. Like yeah. the even like the little guy. Like that's to me like the better, the best match for Alexa I've found. Um, I'm hoping that's gone and people can just focus more just on someone's real, um, and not about what they can just monetarily bring to a project. Yeah. But also, it's a well, sign that if you're getting hired for a job and it's just about your resources, it's probably not going to be a good job. <laughs> Or like the yeah. director probably isn't thinking about it for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, uh, there's a few things I kind of want to unpack in that answer, but, uh, the importance of a reel, do you think that has diminished? Cause a few of the DPs we've spoken to recently have kind of mentioned that it's really just about your last project and reels don't tend to serve a purpose anymore. Yeah. I think, you know, reels beyond you, I think existed. <laughs> reels existed because it was really hard to show everyone your work slash your work wasn't accessible. So that's why, you know, everyone, you know, I think everyone had like three or four tracks they loved for their reel. I think my first reel was put to the last of the Mohican soundtrack. Um, I was very excited about it. It was just like four, four or three films intercut throughout, but you kept going back to the previous films. It was, um, but no, I think reels are dead. I don't think there's any purpose. I've also don't like reels because anyone can take, you know, two good shots from a short film and show those off. And the rest of the short film is garbage. You know, it's like you got two shots at dusk and then the rest of your stuff isn't good. Um, I always think you should be judging people based on projects because if they can make it, you have to be able to make at least one competent project all the way through or one great project all the way through. Um, Cause I think the best websites, you know, I think your website should be incredibly reductive. Like my favorite cinematographers, their websites are like, here's four projects. Like, as opposed to like, I've known you shot hundreds, but like, here's four. These represent what I do, or these are what I'm proud of. Like, there's no need for me to be like, look, I can also do a comedy or look, I can do sports. It's like, no, here's like, here are the four things that I can bring to the table. Um, I think that's the most important. And last, last project too, but a lot of times, you know, I think you're going to just have those, like, everyone's going to create their own iconic work and that they're going to kind of live off of like that one commercial that you're always going to get reference for. Um, you know, a lot of times for me, it was now it's like, I have to have like a secret reel for my agent for like bright, shiny stuff. Cause a lot of my stuff's too moody or dramatic. And it's like, no, look, I can shoot really bright, real flat, real dumb. Um, if I want to like, you know, if I want to pick up a job that's in town and I don't want to, you know, you know, also like the cool moody projects, you know, everyone's going for those. So there's usually a lot of like 
people in you know people in kitchens on phones like doing minutiae with an app like that's like you know the majority of commercials in los angeles so i'm like oh, i can i can do those i can keep the crew happy and fed by doing those while we wait to go do like a crazy movie yeah i mean you like you know you got to pay the bills they're, they're not all going to be oh, yeah. fucking the best they're not all going to be uh, uh sweatpants no. <laughs> well a lot of it it's like a lot of the projects are frustrating because i'm kind of just want to shoot something very like if it's going to be a commercial i want it to be like simple and blunt and let's just get this done or i want us to like go for it and like push it and like make it actually like we're gonna try uh, almost every commercial like not almost everyone but the majority of them are like this is a really stupid commercial but we're gonna really try and you're just like no we you can't that the concept alone isn't worth us pushing it so you get a lot of middle ground spots that think they're being really clever but they're not or that think they, you know, they're going to be great, but they don't have the money or time to actually go for what they're doing. So you just end up getting in like in trouble a lot. Generally, <laughs> that's like a lot yeah. of those middle ground spots. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit? Because I've certainly run into, uh, you know, uh, clients who who think that they have the greatest idea, not just even for the commercial, but just like their thing, whatever their product or their service or their business, and they're and they're like, we want this to look like the highest budget film ever. And we, ha- and we're going to give you $2,000 to do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, crew, whatever, whatever. How do you, how do you kind of, uh, talk people down to like, let's keep this pared down and simple, you know, basic elements and it'll be effective. Um, I think it's, you know, when I was a different, you know, when I first started shooting commercials, I was very game to take those concepts and go with it and push it. And, you know, um, you know, I usually get brought on very last minute. You know, everything's been figured out for the most part. And I, I get, you know, come on, I jump on for the scout. And I'm like, cool location you guys found. I think we can make it work. Let's go. Um, you know, but the, you know, if I had director friends that had commercials um, that they thought could be good, but they had no money, you know, I would director scout with them a bunch or we'd figure out like how we can, you know, reuse a location or maybe we've, you know, we, we moved it to this part of town. We could, you know, change the scene to dusk because we're not going to be surrounded by a wall. We could, you know, you can start gaming. You can start figuring out. I mean, the, the solution to making anything great is just prepping the shit out of it. It's, you just got to figure out. And by that, it's not just, I think everyone will say like prep, 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 but it, it's, it's, it's trying to, to focus what that means, which is problem solving what's holding you back as opposed to just, you know, I think everyone hears prep and they go, oh, you're going to shot list and then you're going to storyboard and then you're going to, you know, it's, it's more just trying to like, identify what you're not going to be able to change on the day and get that figured out far in advance. So that on the day you can have room to, to change variables around. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I don't, at this point, like commercials come so fast that I director scouting a commercial now seems kind of crazy in terms of I get hit up like maybe two weeks before something wants to go. But that's just the U S I feel like Europe, they have like, you know, two months before they shoot a commercial, they're reaching out to crew. And here it's like, what are you guys doing next week? Is your crew around? Do you guys mind working it, nights? Like, you know, it's funny is I, I, uh, a few years ago, I shot a spot for mini with this group that came in from Germany and they were like super apologetic that they could only hire actors to do basically nothing for $600 a day. They're like, this is all we can do. And I was like, we'll find someone like (laughs) definitely find someone for like, it was like just a run and gun, you know, no equipment, just like following people walking through Santa Monica or whatever. And then, yeah, they, they prepped for two months. And then afterwards they went on a 
two month vacation. <laughs> and uh, I was getting a lot of angry phone calls from various people like, hey, how come I haven't been paid yet? And I'm like, they're not in they're not in the office. I don't know where they are. <laughs> they turned off their phones. Yeah. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. I forget. I think very early on as an electrician, I remember watching like gaffers or key grips, like find out that production was from outside the country and be like, we need cash in hand at the end of the day before you leave. <laughs> oh, is that pretty Because things like that would happen. Yeah, no, it was a thing. It was just like, if you found out that the production company was not only from outside the city or, or, the, or the country and that they were leaving the next day after, like, that's also like on those, some of the smaller scrappier spots that you're working on. Right. Um, or like even scrappier web series back in the day we had that issue. <laughs> yeah. Are web series still a thing? They're not a thing, right? It's just streaming now, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure people are. I, you know, my my friend Shannon made a, a web series that she took to a bunch of festivals and won a handful of awards for. So I, th- I think, but I think it's far more low budget. You know, a little more student filmy than gotcha. Yeah, what it used to be. You know, um, have you always been a, a, a very technical cinematographer? Like, you know, um, more nerdy or no? Um. I think I've been pretty nerdy for like a long time. Like I, when I first got into film, I got really into like the chemical part of it. And I only ever got to make up one print, one short, but I remember loving the idea of, of, you know, this is, I was also like, you know, watching like and reading about Savides and Kanji and the cord and all these guys that were doing so much work to the negative to make their own look. Um, yeah. Like that's what really got me into that side of it, even before like the glass and the lighting. And then when I was at school, um, I came up on the lighting side. Um, I started like just juicing and gripping and then, you know, best blowing and the wanting the gaff. And I just kind of just got into that part. I think the idea of like the light, the thing about lighting is, you know, basically you're putting 10 variables on set. And if you make a different concoction every time, like you can keep tweaking. I mean, like that's the first taste you get of cinematography is tweaking lighting um and so once that happened i got really excited and then you could just you know as a kid you're looking at you know magazines of like crazy rigs or crazy lights and everyone's like fiending for like hmis i think one of the bigger experience i think remember like a memorable experience i had was like i'm like the film that I was the most proud of at school, like we had like a 2.5 hmi panned onto the scene and i was like metering it and looking at it and it was like I think I had to pan it off. I think it's too much and I don't think it looks good. And it was like a big deal. They were like, but that's the, that's the big gun we got. And I was like, I know, but I think we can just use these like little tiny park cans. It'll look better. Um, and like got back to like, you know, got the dailies back and I was like, I was right. It looks better. Um, but it was like a, it was very silly. Like all of like the weight you put on the equipment, like a big yeah. gun or like, you know, being able to shoot 35 over 16, things like that. Um, yeah. I'm not sure where this question was going. <laughs> oh, well, uh, the the main reason I asked was just because, um, you know, th- there seems to be a. Uh, I have a theory. I also am very scatterbrained, so I apologize. But uh, so I have a theory that the sort of whatever you want to call it, quote unquote, current generation uh, is so enamored with uh, photochemical film and vinyl and uh, analog stuff because they grew up in an era where um none of that was made available. Everything was every for the past 20 years, everything is, is ephemeral and digital and not tangible. And so, uh, there's been, I'm sure you've seen this heavy push to shoot digital and give it quote unquote, the film look. 
Um, and I was wondering if you had a, an opinion on what that actually is or whether or not it's relevant, um, to make stuff look like film beyond just aesthetically wanting to do that. And B, since you've shot a lot of film, how you were shooting film versus how you shoot digital from more of a, uh, practical, uh, sense. Um, it's a lot to, unpack. I'm sorry. <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, a lot of like, there's this big push for everyone to shoot film. And I remember being so stressed out, just trying to get my eye wrapped around film. Just like you needed so much more exposure than your eyes used to. And like a lot of, a lot of it was just getting your eye dialed into what you thought what you, you know, on set, you could see it and it would look like my face is blown out now. And I'd be like, oh, that looks too much. But later it's going to, it's all going to be there. Like having to build your eye took ages. And I never like, as soon as I like got, I got close to like, I think I understand how film looks now, how to light film. Digital came in. And then the next time I came back to film, I was like, oh shit. Um, <laughs> I had to like kind of relearn, pull out the meter, like, you know, try to shoot some tests. Like there, I get, I get why. I mean, I think I mean, if I shoot film now, I generally want to shoot it for the flaws. Like, you know, I'm dying to do a movie that's just 16 mil, no lighting. It's just capturing it and, and seeing it and giving it this, like, maybe potentially too much of a, a documentary feel. But, like, I love the flaws of it and the way the colors mix and the weird, you know, minutia from the halation that comes from, like, lights and overexposure and, like, kickbacks and filter reflections and all these little, like, artifacts that get saved. Um, I think why people are pushing to make digital look like film, maybe I think they just want it to feel cool. Like there's a part of that, that part of it's there, but like why I do it is I want people to kind of forget about the image. And I think images that are too sharp, like my eye just looks at the pores. It just feels the artifice. Like it brings out all the things I don't like. Um, at the same time, I'm not trying to, you know, make it like an army of ants fighting with grain. What I'm looking for of grain is actually just to soften the image. I don't actually want people to like see the grain kernels. Um, I just want to kind of step on it, if you will, um, so that you it, again you just kind of fall into the image and you're not being directed by like the resolution as much where to look. Um, that's it. It's just kind of weathering it in a way, or making it a bit more timeless as opposed to saying we actually shot this. But then there's like small things like. You can add halation and posts to like, you know, lamps and highlights and windows. And I love that. I think it, it adds a, a romance to the images. And I, I think it works in almost every situation. Um, you know, if you watch Deacon's work, it's the opposite of that. That stuff isn't really there. Um, but at the same time, like when you have flawless actors and flawless sets and someone that's been like thinking about this shot for three months, you know, it's probably going to work. Um, whereas if you're, you know, scrappy and you're running and gunning and you're like, okay, master primes and this camera and the LF are probably not going to make this location look great. I should probably think of something else. Sure. Yeah. That actually kind of brings me to a, a question I had, which was, um, I understand you worked in reality for a while. Oh yeah. I, um, so, Oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? Sorry. Oh no, I was just going to say, uh, you know, doing that for, cause I know you probably don't, <laughs> want to harp on it for too long but um, i'll talk about it it's great uh i was wondering like what that taught you um about narrative filmmaking because obviously it's not the same thing but like moving fast lighting uh, effective lighting versus maybe um lighting that's too nitpicky or anything like that like do, did you kind of learn anything that you carried on into your narrative or music video um, or even commercial work yeah i i was 
I forget, it was a year or two in LA and I was working as a non-union electrician, getting trying to get my days for the union. I was one day away from getting into 728 when the writer strike hit. So like Sick. I was like, cool. My days are gonna lapse. I'm not gonna get in the union. What am I gonna do? My friend was working on Ace of Cakes, which was a TV show about a cake bakery in Baltimore. And he was like, We need like a camera PA. So like I don't know why they just didn't get a local, but they flew me out there and I lived in a bakery for two weeks. Um and I hated it. Um, because I was in like a <laughs> ten by ten room that just smelled of cake all day. Um I don't even know if the iPhone was out then. So I'm just reading like the same one. I think they had comic books in there. Anyways. I kind of just started doing with that company. I started doing all these smaller reality shows, um, like to different parts of the world, different parts of the U S and like loved it. Actually. It was just like four people rocking and rolling, following talent around, meeting people, having to light rooms on the fly, like bouncing things around, having to light a bunch of interviews, which I actually really loved. I got to start working on portrait lighting. Um, mm. And we were actually trying to make it look real. Like the part of the shows we were going for is how can we make the interviews feel unlit, um, which I loved. And I got to just do some type of lighting to it. Um, I think the thing that I noticed is reality TV operators are phenomenal at conversation and dialogue. And I remember just trying to like pan between two people having a conversation the first time and like the DP walked over and he was like, we're going to look at the tapes tonight, dude. You are, you have no idea what you're doing, do you? And I was like, I'm just panning. And he's like, no, 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 you gotta like, you have to like feel it. And it was, those guys can be like, like programmed differently, even, even sometimes better than narrative operators, I think. And that their reactions to like guessing what's going to come up. Um, but I just basically just got to like, I, I call it reality, but in the end it was probably closer to documentary and that we were just dropped into a location. Um, I wasn't doing the love is blind um right. take on things it was much more like me a producer and two other camera folks or i went to where is it I went to chile with i had 70 cases in my room and the first thing i did was Good lose God. the carnet yeah um and it was yeah i was doing that i had 70 cases i was the i was the ac for all the cameras i was c camera operator and i was doing sound which was they taught me on the fly like full pack six wireless receivers or whatever like chasing talent around it was like it was insane i don't know why they let me do it i'd never done it before um but it was a great way to travel and i have great stories from doing that it was a fun way to just see these kind of wild countries but i mean i, I basically just took away like from that i don't know kind of how to be scrappy and on work on the fly but also like how to operate around like non-actors was a big part of it and kind of feel like the, the pace and it's also interesting to watch like uh, reality producers will, you know, they'll stop someone talking and ask them to say it again, or they'll revisit something oh. um, to see how you can actually like, they are inadvertently directing non-actors and seeing that, seeing, seeing some of them be really good at that. It's kind of like, cause there are a lot of directors out there that like to work with non-actors now too, but you're I'm watching these, you know, producers that are basically just directing scenes. Um, and it was really cool to watch because they didn't actually think they were directing them, if that makes sense. They were just trying to get that bite or to get that right. little narrative chunk. But in reality, I was like, no, you're doing a great job directing, buddy. Just keep keep doing that. We'll, we'll, we'll get it. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I did want to uh, draw kind of a, a line. My first um, introduction to your work was actually uh, smooth sailing. Cause I'm uh, a big Queens of the stone age fan. Um, but did you, did you know that band before you shot that or was that, 
Oh yeah, no, no, no. It. Songs for the Deaf was like one of my favorite albums when it came out. Um, okay. And I have a couple of friends that were just obsessed with them. Um, so I was really amped, and the producer on that too was a massive Queens of the Stone Age fan. So he was like really excited and really pushing Hero to do the video. He's like, "We gotta do it! We gotta!" Do it. Um, yeah, no, I was. It was pretty fun to do that. I was like, "Oh, this is like you know." It's kind of rarely you get to sync up with like some of your favorite artists, and that was actually a good song too. A lot sometimes you do get to sync up with artists that you love, but the track you're working on is like, "No, this isn't your best." But that that actually was a great track. Um, was the uh, was there anything that you um, learned on that set or because I, I whenever I I've often talked about how in my head music and film are very similar uh, and I oftentimes have a hard time articulating why and I'll be like no it's like like Josh Homme will like do this thing on his guitar that's like film and I don't know never know how to like explain like get that out of my head uh, in a coherent way um, but I was wondering if, if on that shoot, if working with, uh, Josh or, or anyone else kind of, what was that creative environment like? I think he really, you know, we kind of let him do his thing and we got to really play around with it. Um, and he was there and was watching us work with all of like the businessmen and he saw like a lot of the video is, you know, interpreted like the swaying of being drunk is interpreted with the rhythm of the song and that's why we had all these body camera mounts he, remember he was very excited to put the mounts on um <laughs> and get these very weird shots um it was i mean not it was pretty fast and furious when we shot it it's a bit of a blur we shot in this little tokyo mall in downtown la and we shot like in like a like a korean korean restaurant to start and then we like ran down an escalator and then we went to a bowling alley that happened to have um, karaoke and that's where we shot Josh for most of it and then staged the fight outside of it um I forget I mean he was I think the whole like you know it was this very silly video that had like a punk rock thing going with it and he just kind of leaned into that I remember he actually went too big and did some pretty outlandish stuff and then after we shot it he was like you guys can't use that <laughs> too far Probably. Too far. I know it was my idea, but I, I just saw the playback and we shouldn't use that. That's too much. Um, he, he was having a good time. Yeah. Cause, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting cause, um, you know, I found that and didn't, you obviously didn't know hero, didn't know you didn't just saw that. I was like, that's great. And then I remember seeing, it was literally was like sweatpants and, uh, and this is America and going like, man, I really like these three separate, vi- didn't think they were all the same like team or whatever. And so it was a very exciting, uh, aha moment. However, you know, I think it must've been when this is America came out where I started to put all those pieces together and was like, Oh shit, this is all the same people. Um, what, uh, how did you get involved with you? I know people have probably asked you this, so, uh, I just didn't do that, <laughs> that, section of research and then we'll get into the Daniels, but like, how did you get involved with hero and what, um, does your guys's relationship look like and what, and then I'll ask another thing instead of loading you with seven questions. <laughs> um, I mean, here's, here's, here's a funny story. There's like, um, bizarrely harkens back to like the film school question of like, why do you go to film school? I think I, when I graduated, um, one of the teachers or professors or whatever was like, you paid, X amount of money to meet 10 people that will determine the rest of your career. He was like, that's why you went to film school. I was like, you're like, sure. And I met Hero because a friend of a friend was producing a small music video for Partisan. And he knew that I was like a younger DP doing scrappier stuff. And he was like, hey, 
check out my friend Hero. He's doing this project. And that's like the first time I got connected just randomly um, mm -hmm. through someone who I kind of knew through school. Um, and I saw Hero's very first music video and it like blew me away. It's still one of my favorite music videos. Um, and I was like, I need to work with him. And then I forget that the next video came for a bus band called Bus Driver. And I wasn't able to oh, do I it. Bus Driver. Like, oh. <laughs> and I was what like, oh, was shit, it? I'm not going to. Um, it's the one where he's got the giant head and he's like, he's like a pinata or something. I'm trying to remember it. Um, it's a very silly video. Um, but I was super bummed. I couldn't do it. I think the whole thing took place at like a Chuck E. Cheese and he's like a Chuck E. Cheese type. Okay. I forget. It was, it was very absurd. Um, and this is back when here I was doing a bit more of like outrageous pop stuff. Um, but I thought like I'd missed the boat. And the very first thing me and hero did together was a bubble gum commercial involving a unicorn which is completely not either of us, but we kept trying to work together. And then we just started making these like dark, weird, you know, music videos that and every time we'd shoot, there'd always be, you know, pickups, which is kind of unique to music videos. You don't really do that, but we'd always be like, well, what if we went back and got these one little, you know, cut to him, me and him cruising around at night in like grocery stores or alleyways trying to like find little details like that. But we just clicked and we got, we got along really well. And, you know, we just felt like someone that I would have been friends with in high school. Um, we just kept trying to play with themes that we'd been working on throughout all of our projects. And, and, you know, he'd come with like a really weird idea and be like, what if we did this? And then we just kind of mess around. I think a lot of, a lot of the work we made was because we had time to let things kind of marinate and metabolize before we shot it. So we could actually like bring themes and ideas to it as opposed to like, we're shoot, let's shoot next week and we'll just figure it out on the day. A lot of it is like just slowly figuring it out. And he's a lot of his treatments usually have a lot of interesting references that aren't direct visual references for what you want, but like a tone that you can kind of take and spin and put in a different direction. Yeah. I mean, I, I <laughs> there's, it's funny cause you guys have like super, uh, detailed videos like sweatpants and then super simple shit like uh, the Chet Faker video, um, which I'm sure is a little more difficult to execute than just, yeah, we just put it on the back of a camera, but simple in, in premise. Um, and I've seen so many people rip off that, that video, <laughs> that, that video spawned a whole slew of copycat uh, music videos. The Chet Faker but, one? Yeah. There was a whole I've, debate on Reddit if that was green screen, like a like a huge debate about if it really? was green screen. No, oh, yeah, no, it was I was it was baffling to me. Um, yeah, some very elaborate concepts. Someone even pitched that, that we had built like a like a treadmill of pavement or something. I don't know. Um, it was a pretty great deep dive on people thinking because we front lit it kind of like the Fiona Apple video, criminal, um, and then we didn't like how that looked, so we we had rigged a Kino to the bottom of a truck and uplit it, which gave it this weird fake thing happening to it. And which, sure. uh, which, uh, which I think is what kind of threw people off. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure how many people thought it was green screen, but it was, it was a good, there was a good couple of days that you read. It just kept going. It's dude. I've noticed a lot of people overthink stuff like that. Like, uh, you know, the, the example I've used a handful of times is like, I, you know, I grew up as a magician and kind of getting back into it now because I'm bored. But like there's a trick where David Blaine puts a hat pin through his hand and everyone has a lot of theories about how he does it. 
uh, he puts a hat pin through his hand. That's how he does it. He fucking stabs himself in the hand. Or his bicep. Like, he just does it. And I think people don't want to conceptualize the, like, the simplest answer. Yeah, we put a camera on the back of a truck and had a bunch of people rollerblading. Like, it's... (laughs) It is what you saw it was. Um... But I did want to know, uh, when working with Hero, uh, what aren't you guys doing? Is there like a list of things or maybe some stuff that that you're just like, we? that's not us when you're doing projects with him? We don't really shoot safeties. Like we don't shoot coverage or stuff just in case. You know, a lot of times you'll make some bold choices and you'll shoot a shot that's going to be the glue in the edit. Um, and generally we like, we don't really work on the fly that much either. We like it's a lot of the stuff. Well, that's not necessarily true. I take that back. Um, but um, the things that we don't do, um, I don't think we expect to, we don't expect to find things on the day. Yeah. If that makes sense, I think we we kind of he kind of we really like to figure it out. At the same time, everything we done we done is like kind of fluid and evolves. Um, but there's there's very little improv necessarily like it's fun to like thematically build something up um and then kind of get weird like kind of create like a, a place to get weird if that makes sense i'm not sure if what i just said is um like uh, makes sense at all actually because we- <laughs> <laughs> i'm not quite sure what we don't do um it very much feels um it's different than other than i work with other directors and that we generally are playing with an idea um, I don't think we're directly defining that idea until we get close to shooting. Whereas some people are like, this is what it is. It's a wonder. Um, there's a lot of, with Hero, there's a lot of, well, what if, like even like for This Is America, I have a bunch of footage of me and him just walking around and like playing around with the opening shot. Like he'd sit in and play the guitarist and I'd be the camera and then vice versa. And originally we are going to have like kids run by. And then, well, what if he goes around the corner? Like we, we kept playing with how to do it and just kind of figuring it out on the day. Um, I think a part of it is also just kind of being silly and, 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 you know, photographing yourself and trying to like figure out some visual way to communicate to someone else what you're doing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's all kind it's of blurry. It's very, it's very, it's very, it's a very, it's a very organic thing with him because we've been doing it for so long. Mm. Um, it's less of like a, there's less of a checklist when we go into making projects together. It's more of like, we just start talking about the exciting stuff or like, how the fuck do we do this? This is another big part of it. Yeah. Um, before we get into, uh, uh, the Daniel stuff, I did want to ask, I, I'm get, I get the impression that you color a lot of your own stuff. I used to, I used to color all my stuff. Like right when I started Apple color came out, I'm not sure that's still a thing anymore, but like it was a legit color, <laughs> color grading program. I think DaVinci's free now. Um, it is. Which, which what Apple Color really kind of was a breakthrough for me. That That's what really helped me figure out a lot of photography, just like how to like, what, you know, what, what can you shoot and how far can you push it later? Um, what's saveable? What's too dark? What's going to give you inky black? Like I remember like building our first LUT with like the HVX back in the day and we had like a great secret sauce. 
um, that gave us like a really good black by like crushing the toe in camera. So that way, when you expose that, you're actually filling your shadows in. So anyways, um, it was like, no, that's uh, good stuff. Yeah. You can, you can rant about that for a hot minute. That's good. That's good info. Yeah, no, we like, we, we, we like back when, you know, camera settings were such a thing. Um, everyone had like the pedestal and like the, it's like, I forget, I forget how many different sub menus we'd go through, but I had like my roommate got real nerdy and we basically took an HVX and another camera and like, we just put the lens cap on them and looked at a histogram and we saw the bottom line was like trembling. And then we kept taking the pedestal to a point where the bottom line stopped trembling. I'm like, Oh, that's, that must be pure black. And we thought we were geniuses for doing this. <laughs> um and it looked great it was really cool i like gave like an edge to all of our like digital photography to be focused um but that was like the first taste of like what lux can do um whereas now i don't like i'm heavily involved in the color grade um i generally work with one colorist now a guy named alex Bickle, who's who's the bee's knees he, he did moonlight and a bunch of other movies and I, I found him on a film called kin but he's been kind of doing every film with me but he's as nerdy as me and wants to kind of keep kind of pushing and playing with the idea of like, what is blood? Like, what is, what are we chasing when we're doing all this stuff? Like, what are we actually trying to do? Are we just in like the, are we, you know, are we trying to make things look like film? Like, what does that mean to look like film? You know, are we just chasing like, we're kind of like, we're always chasing a good skin tone, which is range. You know, you want like film gives you skin that has like magenta and pink and red and green. And like in the slew of other colors to it. And then, you know, with digital, a lot of times you get that patina of like, and it's just flesh, just this one tan. Yeah. Um, So giving that range (laughs) is like what you're chasing. However, to like give you that amazing range, you usually have to do a lot to the image and it fucks up the rest of the image. You know, you're like, oh, you just crank the reds and the blues and do all that. And then you like zoom out from the face and you're like, the world's on fire. This looks insane. Like their skin looks great, but their everything else looks terrible. Um, so it's trying to find that middle ground of the LUT that will work for everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I used to do it a lot. And that really helps me understand what the hell I was talking about um, and how power windows worked and how we could be subtle with them. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing I wanted to know was, um, and you kind of touched on it, but like in what ways did uh, coloring inform your cinematography and vice versa, but also, um, you know, getting it in camera is always good, but what are you doing in the grade that pushes it over the edge? Cause I've noticed that an Alexa can look like dog shit. And then in the hands of a good colorist an Alexa can sing, you know? And so there's something happening, but there's a, but, uh, it can't just be, you know, seven or nine LUT from, from Ari drop, drop the exposure by two stops. <laughs> no, no. Which was what I did for a long time was just like two stops under seven or nine. Like, um, one of my favorite music videos, um, the fly Love video I did of hero was like four stops under exposed at 2000 ISO or something. Um, that was probably more like two and a half stops, but anyways, two and a half stops under exposed 2000 ISO, um, seven or nine. And we shot it and then we took it to our colorist, Ricky. And we were like, you don't really have to touch much. <laughs> he barely touched it. And that was just like the look in camera just looked like, you know, that was us chasing film, which was like tearing the negative, the digital negative apart was the first approach. But now it's like polar opposite in that I'm like the, the trick of using LUTs now is you, as opposed to like applying a LUT and color grading something, you want to start with it when you're shooting. Cause that changes everything. Cause you've, 
you want a LUT that's going to make you overexposed because the more information you have, the more range you can create on skin. Um, it also lets you make ballsier choices when you're making your exposures. You know, if you, if you have like a really thirsty LUT that wants you to overexpose, you can be less afraid about doing a moody shot because you know there's actually going to be more in there. Um, or you can just be a pansy like me and change the ISO to like a stop button, like from like 800 to 400 and shoot it and be like, it'll be okay later. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the, a lot of it now, because of, because it does that, I can actually see much closer to the end product. You know, if you're like, Hey, we want a LUT that's going to give us purple shadows. You know, all of a sudden I can be like, Oh, this thing, this scene needs way more fill because their face is purple and I want the shadows just to be in there. I want the purple just to be in their hair or something. Um, we can start up doing that. Basically you want LUTs to be interactive on set so that when you get to the grading process, you're really not making big swings. You know, you're, you're just kind of finessing it, you know, smaller paint, paint brush strokes. And the LUT itself is like the big choice that you're making and then you're shooting with it so you can actually feel it. Um, and usually when we're shooting, we'll, tweak and augment the LUT a bit or boost the contrast or I just did a TV show where we had a LUT based on film stock from 1972 um, which was really fun to play with because cyan doesn't exist in that film stock so it doesn't look like modern films where cyan isn't everything Interesting. Um, it was more like a cobalt blue um, which was like a different you know all of a sudden like your shadows got inkier much quicker and you had to like kind of light your nights differently is there anything that you're doing in those LUTs that uh, are kind of like, um, I don't want to say compulsive, but, you know, something that you're like, that you're always looking for? Because uh, the look is always going to change, but is, are there some like tent pole um, adjustments that you're like, this this is, this looks well, good? We, <laughs> well, usually, so I usually, we for the LUT, each LUT we build per project, and I did an indie called Two Leslie right after EAO or like the year after. Um, and we went to a motel and we shot, you know, 16 mil Alexa and 35. And we did the exact same frames for each shot. And then we did um, Ektachrome 200 T16, 500 T16 and then 500 T35 and Alexa. And it was really fun to put all those together. You know, so Alex was like, all right, here's film. And you're like, Oh, man, it doesn't look that different. <laughs> it right. looks pretty close. Um, and it was a little sad. And, and you were like, um, and then you're like looking at 200 T16. And you're like, fuck, that looks a lot like 35. That grain's really tight. Like, should we shoot it on that? And then you'd go and you'd be shot a night exterior. And you're like, okay, well, now film is shining. Like, that's the last place I was thinking film's going to be great. But you have headlights and neons and all of that. And it just, you know, you get that film look. You get these like colors and range and halation burnout and it just felt like you were you know any night exterior when you have like especially like say like older glass or something it's gonna feel very vintage um uh yeah so that was it was the getting back to the question in terms of tentpole um we'll go and we'll shoot like the last tv show i did again set is about watergate so we went and shot like moody interiors and another and like a motel on stage and we tested you know 10 different lenses and then we we shot you know front lit back lit side lit you know warm lit cold lit and we just basically put it through the range and then you kind of you know a lot of it is always like i i like high contrast generally that's right. usually something i push for and then i push for 
skin to pop. Like I want to have a LUT that, that, that recognizes that like, you know, right around the 60% at this type of, you know, opacity or whatever that they can actually arc. And I think that, I think Alex calls it spark is what he does. He adds it into, into a LUT that'll actually pop faces a bit more, recognize that part of whatever spectrum and, and lift it a bit. Um, so, so you don't have like to a, light as hard. Is it like a skin tone, like in the cur- in the color curves? Is it just like a luminance boost in the skin tones? It's a luminance boost and I think a contrast boost in the area. There's a, there's a lot of, there's so many crazy little things you can do now. Like he also has, I forget, now you can start isolating colors within skin. So you can just have red be boosted, but just in the range of skin. Um, well, interesting. I forget. He's worth, if you want a good interview, he's like the best nerd of all time. I would love that. Type of stuff. The reason I'm asking is because I, over the pandemic, I, I just got really deep. I didn't have, you know, anything to shoot, obviously. Um, and so I, uh, really got into, into coloring and stuff, coloring all my own stuff and just learning about it. And, um, definitely helped me, uh, work wise. Cause I can really, you know, it's the value add for the client or whatever, but, um, very educational as well. So I'm always just trying to pick up like little yeah. tips. Well, he's, he's great. Cause he's also, not only is he like, like the very, very talented colorist, like top tier, but he like runs and owns his own color house. So he's a lot of colorists you'll meet are very talented, but they have like a couple of assistants and they work for a big company. Like he knows the full thing top to bottom. He knows, we know what cables are going, where he knows what the system's running. He knows why your, your shit just shut down for no reason. Like he's like, knows the full concept and execution of, of it from like machines and guts to like over the top conceptual software ideas. Like it's really fun to actually dig into it with him because um, cool. he can tell you exactly what's happening. You know, I, I had not seen interesting ball until, um, about two hours ago, but I had, <laughs> I had been running around <laughs> after the screening, uh, at city walk. I had, uh, been telling everyone like, yo, you gotta go see this everything everywhere movie. It's fucking dope. Cause I, I still haven't seen, um, Swiss army man. And, and, you know, there was a bunch of people had seen that and they're like, Oh, if you hadn't yada, yada, yada. But a few of my more, uh, educated friends, I suppose had seen interesting ball whenever that came out and were like, bro, you got to watch. It's the same, it's the same thought process. It's like the same thing. So I was wondering if you, a, what that shoot felt like at the time versus what you guys are doing now, but also just like, um, how, how you feel, uh, you have progressed between those two projects, that one and, and everything everywhere. Um, interesting ball trying to figure out why we made it. Um, I forget if we had funding from somewhere. I think we should, we use it as a camera test. It's like three different cameras, like some scenes are on red, some scenes are on like the Alexa. Um, I wasn't even available for all of it cause it was so pieced together over a course of a month. Like my first AC Matt Sanderson shot the bro formers. Um, on the beach because I wasn't there for that, um, and I think he shot the runaway fridge, and I did the the the, the butt suckers and the ball, and then like the balls affair, <laughs> um, uh, and then a couple of the other scenes. Do I remember what it was? I had a restaurant scene of Wayman. Um, it's funny that is that movie is. There's another Wayman. Back at it now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that name came from that Wayman. That Wayman is in our movie as well. He is one of the he is one of the um, followers of Jobu, and he's got a couple of shots. Um, he's a fascinating actor. But they took, I believe, they took. They loved his name so much that they were like, "We'll, we'll name our 
main character after him. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, that I mean, yeah, if you watch that, you can see that that, that swirling cosmic idea. Of, you know, everything's connected, and what matters is what you do with it, not so much about what you could do with it. Um, uh, yeah, it's been. I don't how that road started. Well, we shot Swissy, and then you know it hit, and it was you know people loved and hated it, and I'm not sure how many people saw it, but you know things were brewing, and the Daniels were doing like little commercials and and some TV and they just spent forever working on the script. Um, Cause I just saw it kind of build in pieces of like, we know how we're going to do it conceptually. At one point I tried to make, have them change the name to like everywhere, everything, everywhere, every time. So we could call it E3. Um, but they didn't <laughs> like that at all. <laughs> um, I think the original name was called, <laughs> I know, but I was like, it's just going to be cleaner to call it E3. Um, it was originally called Bubbles. Um, I mean, it kind of brewed organically. Like, you know, I would check in with them, and eventually I got sent the script and read it. I remember reading it twice on a plane um, and becoming very confused between the second and third act about who's doing what and what Evelyn is alive and what Evelyn's dead. And even when you watch the movie now, I don't think most people know that, like, the main Michelle Yao that you've been following dies and that you were actually following a different version of her through the right. film for the rest second half of it but it feels like no she woke up but no she died there's a different universe but she comes back to life um in the end it doesn't matter though um but i remember being i'm glad you said that because i was wondering that when it happened <laughs> i was like wait was that a wake up or is this a new one <laughs> new one yeah no it, it, is, it is i believe technically it, it is a new michelle it is a new one because that one died so she, she can't be brought back to life right um that would be um, insane. Yeah. I remember we tried, we tried to make the movie for, they kept talking about it and they kept pushing and I was terrified because I have a, my daughter was, was due to arrive when they wanted to shoot and the dates kept moving because of talent. And then like, luckily, you know, when we started prep, we timed it out. They kind of, you know, we timed it around them and they kind of timed it around me and that, like prep ended around the holidays. And my daughter was born basically on Christmas. So I had like a week with her or two. And then we jumped into the film, <laughs> um, which was pretty surreal. Because there was a moment where I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to shoot this. Like if my daughter's born during the shoot, I can't, I'm not going to not be there. Um, but magically she arrived at Christmas when no one was shooting. Um, so, so it worked out. Um, yeah, I know it's been a funny path. I mean, I did a bunch of things since Swiss Army Man, but the Daniels, you know, they were just kind of occasionally day playing, not day playing, but like jumping into direct episodes of TV and doing commercials and really just working on this and figuring it out. There's, as you can tell, there's a lot going on in that movie. And even sometimes I'm like, where did this idea come from? Like I get everything else. Where did that idea come from? Like what made you think that was going to be the idea to throw in there? I'm um, like Rakakuni. I was like, why, why is this? I love Rakakuni. <laughs> everything else i get but i was like what was this one about you just you just wanted to go for it it was actually a nod to um interesting ball in the rakakuni story when she's running on on harry um you know in interesting ball the bro formers are all running and kind of falling apart and i believe they throw one of the bros one of the bros at the end so he can reach reach his goal and we did the same thing with rakakuni she ends up throwing 
Harry right. towards the raccoon. You don't even actually see him get to his raccoon. You can just tell he's probably going to get there. Um, you feel that was it. a hard, hard, hard reference to their previous work. It's yeah, it's so much fun. I uh, I did want to know though how how are you conceptualizing each look? Because there are some really overt references in this film to other films, and I'm sure there's some that are more um, subdued. And I was wondering, a like which films were you referencing that weren't obviously their their own? Um, but then also, how were you conceptualizing all these format changes, all these lens changes? Like, what was the reasoning behind each one beyond you know? That's the thing. Well, I assume the pre-production process was a little intense. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we, you know, I, we tried to collect all the universes, and I built a big PDF of, you know, what I like about, you know, what what were thematics. I wanted no universe was a direct like it is this movie. It was more to me. It was more of like this. It is a memory of this movie or these movies. It was the idea of what something felt like as opposed to what it looked like. So even like in the Wong Kar Wai verse, we're actually a lot more colorful than in the Mood for Love. Like in the Mood for Love is actually not colorful at all, um, except for like two very specific shots. And ours is like soaked in neon. Um, but it feels like it because you have you know, Raymond dressed like Tony. You know, Michelle is like, it's very elegant and we are, we are clearly going for In the Mood for Love, but it, it's more of like, it's what I think people think in for the mood, what people think In the Mood for Love feels like. Because right. um, when you watch it, it's actually just, it's tungsten light exposed for tungsten. Like it's actually kind of, it's beautiful, but like it's bland in terms of color. It's this very bare. I mean, we did the opposite of that. We're like hard saturation. <laughs> we'll go for it. Um, but we, we, we made a PDF and then me and costumes and makeup and, and hair all sat down and kind of talked about the theme for each universe. And again, I think we made a color palette list for, for each universe, but then also we talked about what colors should not be in there. And I think the co- choosing which colors you don't want is sometimes a stronger choice. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, with um, Spike Jones's Her, they chose to remove the color blue. Completely changed how that film looked. Um, for this one, we like you know we tried to save certain colors. So like the laundromat New Year's Eve party red is the predominant color for that, and we tried to keep it out of as many other universes as we could. Um, you know the subtler ones are like the Rakakuni universe um, is our PTA universe, even though it's not at all. But that was <laughs> the theme of like these very bold, rich like 1998 colors, like these like real blues and like fleshy skin. Um, and if you watch it, you would be like, no, this is not, you know, but it's like anamorphic. It's like bold skin tones, locations. We didn't have time to really light them the way they would have been lit. We've been lit like Magnolia has some like phenomenal lighting. And, you know, if we had time and money. We would have brought condors and let the shit out of it. But it was like, no, we're just going to use the streetlights because we have two hours to shoot her running on top of a man's back, chasing a raccoon <laughs> in a truck. Um, so we just had to go with it. Um, but it was like you start somewhere small. Hot Dog Hands started with Carol as a reference and then very quickly left that concept because Carol's too stunning and we just couldn't do it in our locations. It was like, we can say we did, but we're not going to. That's not what we're doing. Yeah. Um, um, 2001 was just like bizarrely. We got lucky, I think, with that one. Like we 
found rocks next to the stages we were doing pickups for and just timed it at the right time of day. And we shot on old Tadeo lenses that were barely in focus. Um, you know, that's also, there's, we only had one monkey. We had two monkeys. I take that back. So all the wide shots was just, you know, Daniel Shiner in a monkey suit, just running around to different parts of the rock, pretending to be a monkey. And then they just comped it all together. Um, right. The Alpha Verse was, um, which is mainly just in that van that Waymond is in with his buddies. It's supposed to be in a hot desert, but on the day I tried to sell that it was more of like the Battle of Hoth because the the costumes that the, the Alpha people were wearing reminded me so much of Star Wars that we just pushed the idea of like a bright, snowy exterior kind of pumping in through the windows. Um, and then in the LUT, we, or in the grade, we like went a bit harder and I think we we went down to 16 mil grain at one point and then came back because it was doing too much damage to the image. Um, but we wanted to make it kind of bristly and over the top and just very kind of bright and blown out. Um, and the bagel verse is like, I think you're saying it's like an amalgam of like memories of, of like films from my childhood. And, and I'm trying to remember what their direct references were, but you know, never ending story. Like the princess from that was a big, it's kind of sure. clicked in my brain. This weird, crystalline palace lynchy thing happening um there is also like the the black rainbow film was also like a theme in that this like these like very stark images of these weird lifted blue shadows um this kind of like flawed film was like a like a, is it beyond the black rainbow is that the film you know what i'm talking about i haven't about? seen it so I, I do not know um it was yeah it was just again it's one of those weird like what was your memory of, of this scene? Like when you, when, once you see it, as opposed to like, this is exactly that. Like, you know, Swiss army man was a million references, but you know, my main reference for that was hook. Cause I was like, sure. It's two lost boys in the woods. And like, we're going to go really big with warm fire and colors. and make it feel like they just threw it together. Um, but yeah, no, I think we, we slowly built upon it. And the bigger thing was actually trying to create the look for the, action universe which was like trying to figure out you know what's the big choice we make for this and we we, we shot a ton of different angles at the laundromat and at the um irs building and then we brought it back and gave it to alex bickle um and he sent us like four variations on different stocks and we showed us the directors and we'd pick two and then debate them we ended up on like a fuji look which kind of you know gave us cyan shadows which was really fun for a building like that and had really beautiful skin tone for that type of skin. Um, but even in the grade, I was like, there's too much cyan the movie. We got to get rid of it. It's killing me. And Alex was like, you have to just embrace it. It's already, it's a theme. You just got to, you got to live with it. And I think the, the dumbest one we did was for hot dog hands, the musical, um, which was <laughs> shot in the same location as the Wong Kar Wai universe. Literally they're on the stairwell. They're in the stairs first time they meet and it's really beautiful and then the reverse angle of that is the hot dog musical which is like a weird fountain and that was based on the sound of music and alex made a really cool lot that did that whole technicolor like purple pink skin with like weird shadows um and that was one of the first luts that we built and the daniels were like oh wow this is like a lut lut <laughs> <laughs> it's like doing it's like doing like the scorsese aviator thing you know where it's really it's really going for it yeah um yeah, it was, it was, it's fun to get to actually have an excuse to do those, um, for a good reason. Yeah. It's, uh, 
what what lenses because you said you had like a shit ton of them like which what lenses did you have on the film i'll get i'll get real specific there you go um where is it uh I go. can't imagine for so, that budget you had full packages of each. No, no. I mean, I, you know, the, I work at, I've been going, trying to go through the same camera house, Keslo, because they've been friends Keslo's for like awesome. a long time. And, you know, I think the idea is, you know, you, you, you know, you bring them big stuff. Like I was like, Hey, let's do the pickups for Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Man two. We did all the pickups for that through Keslo or like, you know, do all your commercials through one house so that when you can, you do it to a fashion project, you're like, Hey, we have no money, but remember all like the, you know, all those dumb things we shot that had budgets. Like this one is an awesome thing that doesn't have a budget, you know, right. and they were, you know, they've been, they've been wonderfully kind and supportive and really never said no. Um, Cause we asked what we do. We had Hawkeye lights for the action universe, which is, you know, if you can't get Panavision anamorphics to me, that's your best bet in terms of it's got decent. They had just come out with a macro anamorphic 50 mil, which became like a, 55 mil, which became a huge workforce because minimum focus is so garbage on most anamorphics um, that a lot of like a lot of it was shot on that lens. Um, and then the majority of the like normal world or like the apartment stuff or the laundromat was shot on Zeiss Super Speeds. And then we had for the first six weeks we had the an Atlas Orion anamorphic and the Scorpion anamorphic because we wanted oh, okay. to have wider anamorphics that didn't distort. Um, and the Scorpion is literally like a soulless lens. Like it is super clean, um, but it has no funk. And then the Orions are actually like, I think you're going to see a lot more of those coming up. I think when the Sangren and Fraser are shooting with them a bunch now, but they're like the super speeds of anamorphics, if that makes sense. And that they're, they're like sharp. They don't distort that much, but they're still just enough. Like, well, just, they've been stepped on just enough that there's like an edge to them, you know? But at the same yeah, time, they, they feel clean. Open. Oh, yeah. Um, then we shot the Cook anamorphics as well. We, sh- we use them for zoom for anamorphic zooms. We had an Optimo yeah. zoom. Um, and then the Dayplay lenses were the Super Baltar. I want to say were, that was Hot Dog Hands. And then the Tadeos were the, um, were the Bagelverse. But they may have been too crazy for that. We may have switched to Hawks in the middle of it. And then we shot Canon um, K35s for the long car wipers. Gotcha. Yeah, that's just yeah. that. I, I assume this is the most uh, involved film you've worked on in that regard. Um, yeah, I think so. Like, it's I mean, it's funny because, you know, the most involved film when you jump on a TV show and it's like, here's eight hours of material for you to go shoot. And you're just like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Um, but still, you don't remember it the way you remember the work you put in on movies. Um, yeah, no, it's. I'm impressed that we didn't. We all. I take that back. We also shot 16 mil glass as well. So all of the Michelle, um, when Michelle decides to not leave with Waymond and she decides to stay in town and becomes a martial arts superstar, all of that majority of that was shot on a 16 mil uh, zoom. Specifically also when she's like working out with the master and like the tiny, tiny right. garden that was shot in Elysian Park. It's like um, <laughs> all of that stuff is shot in Elysian Park in Chinatown. Um, 
the but, Kill Bill um, universe, so to speak. <laughs> yes, that one exactly. Yeah, those are all. A lot of that was just sixteen mil zooms, which are really fun to play with. Um, but um, yeah, it was. I mean, it, it it wasn't necessarily daunting. It was like that's the part you that's the stuff you look forward to, right? Like you get to like yeah. pick lenses and do tests and like make some really stupid ideas and choices and build up. Ultimately, a lot of it was the look has really comes more from location and costumes and then the lighting like the glass and the LUTs are helpful but we did a lot more with like what was actually in front of the camera um we shot a lot at some old stages called dc stages where they just had standing sets that are terrible just like just like can only function from one angle um and they're gone now but that's like a whole ton of the universes were shot there like half of like the michelle like when she's doing martial arts tv shows when she's doing martial arts tournament and there's like the whole prison sequence when they're like walking through a row of prison cells oh right and, like, right yeah and then we also shot like the young michelle when she's blinded and her, and her father is singing to her in bed um and the pizza universe was shot outside in the parking lot and then the school bus where jobu like tries to run in the traffic was shot in the parking lot and then the, the bar down the street is the bar from all like sunny where it's the first time you see joy as jobu it was like you'd we shot all of those in one day. You'd shoot like, you know, oh. like that last week was like, you know, every shot was a new scene. It was like, here's the shot. Run in, get it. I mean, it was, it, you know, and we're used to doing How that. How big was you know, the crew? But, um, For that it was pretty stuff. small. Um, we didn't, even on the film, you know, we had a budget of 15. Um, I have no idea where the number 25 million, that's what I keep seeing on the internet, keeps popping up. And I was like, if we had that number, it'd be a very different film. <laughs> um, it was it was very, it was actually surprisingly scrappy in that, you know, we didn't have any rigging teams. So like the lighting department, like run by Matt Ardine, who's that, my friend that I met the first day of college, who's been gaffing with me now for over a decade. Um, you know, he had no one to rig anything. And so part of shooting in that building was he would, you know, he basically just send our best boy getting Mike Beckman around on stilts because we had so many Titans in the building. He spent like days upon days in stilts, just walking around like a, like a monster, basically just changing out tubes and moving things around um, and just kind of slowly attacking things that were going to be coming up in the days ahead. Um, those, it, was, it was kind uh, of absurd. Were those Titan tubes playing as practicals or were you like hiding them to be film lights? We played we played them as practicals for several sequences. There's like a, a sequence where Michelle or Evelyn meets Jobu for the first time in a hallway after Jobu like kills three cops, and the lighting's going kind of wild. And there's all these different chases that are happening, and you have to install them, and then you have to run. You have to because of the delay in wireless, you have to run cables to all of them. So then you have to actually get into like the guts of the building and run cables down so you can break them into pixel mode so you can actually do these kind of crazy chases. Right. Um, so it took it took a long time to rig. Um, and we again we didn't have a rigging team so the, the onset crew just got very slim. Be like Matt and like an electrician and then everyone else was just out rigging lights for something coming up like a day from them and hoping we could get it done in time. What we also uh, like what? the atrium sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I was I was just gonna say like what was that lighting package like and how are you keeping it small? But we we didn't have enough money to actually light the atrium. So we we're shooting in winter and so the atrium is lit from a giant skylight. So like when we lost the light at five PM, we lost the light. 
we're like, all right, well, I guess we're done shooting in the atrium now. And that's where a ton of the scenes happen. So I think at, when we were doing the, the fanny pack fight, we shot incredibly, we had to do all of the dialogue in the whole area, which is really frustrating because there's a lot of dialogue of her, like seeing the divorce papers and getting to the elevator and alpha women and her punching Jamie. And then we had to do the fanny pack fight. Um, we had to shoot as much as we, we had to shoot everything looking out the atrium first. And then when we turned around, we had like an 18K that we could kind of bounce into the ceiling, but even still, it didn't look good. Like, cause the light right. is like, it's very diffused directional top light. And then we're trying to like bounce this broad light across the room. So it gets a little like, you know, the, it gets a little sketch in terms of lighting. And then for the finale, when they're on the staircase, and they're, you know, they're they're making their way up, and it's all lit from above. We only could afford uh, blanket lights for one half of the atrium, so we would have to shoot like the pinky fight, and then the next day we'd have to like you know spend three hours moving lights from one side of the atrium to the other so we could shoot the staircase fight. Um, it would have been a lot nicer just to light the whole thing, but we were like, even that was like a big. Uh, not fight, but it was a big hurdle for production just to get the lights to light the atrium appropriately for that. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty scrappy in that regard. That we, we and again, like now I'm working on most movies and TV shows I work on. We have a fully dedicated rig team. Like their job is to right. just you know go on our scouts. We walk up, sets are rigged, and on this one it was like, no, our main unit's just doing that when it has time. And 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 we were able to do it again because we spent 30 days in that one building. Right. Did you, uh, did I hear correctly that you were, uh, using a handful of split comps to just hide lights places that, uh, you wouldn't otherwise get them? Um, I love doing that. I like doing that as much as I possibly can. Um, cause I know it's pretty easy. I don't remember doing it too often in this, but I think I like anytime there were scenes of stunts, I was like, well, we're going to be pulling ceiling tiles and putting in cables there anyway. It's like, why don't I just throw a light on there and just, you know, copy paste, you know, one drop ceiling to the next. Um, yeah. but we didn't do it too often. I wasn't actively seeking it out. Um, I remember the first time like hearing about it, I think hearing you could do that. Obviously Deacons did that in, um, um, the Shyamalan film. And he would just, he literally had 18K be the moon when they just painted oh. out the stand. Um, but like Adele's first music, her big hit video, I was like, man, she looks, she looks great. How is, how are they lighting her? And then I found out like later, it's like, oh, there was a C stand of a fluorescent just, just in the shot. And they just painted it out. That's why she's, I'm like, how is she lit? Like that's, there's no lights in the room. And then that's what they did. Um, but no, for this one, we were also just moving too fast to, We'd even get that creative and like, I'll put a light here. A lot of a lot of the movie was spent trying to make the building look different. So a lot of we started very bright and then we started just turning things off and trying trying to go for like a diehard feel, um, right. and getting pretty dramatic. And there's like Wayman has like a big monologue about how the world's changed, nothing tastes the same when they're like in a dark hallway with like security lights beeping and there's no light coming in. And I was like, yeah, this feels right, right? No one will no one will question why this hallway's dark. Um, it was just kind of just leaning into the, the film pretty strong at that point. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but having a, uh, I'm, I'm using chaotic cause I have no other word to use, but it's, it, it, I don't mean it as a negative. Having such a chaotic script, uh, does 
I feel like allow you the freedom to kind of do shit like that where no one's going to people have too many other questions to question why this thing is going to going to be dark. Yeah, no, I think I mean, yeah, we their Daniels are I think there's someone said they're maximalist to a degree. Um, and I think they just like to take bold swings. And I like to take bold swings, too. I feel like if the audience has time to question, like, why is this hallway dark? Or like, why is it there? There's something else in the movie is wrong. Like you fucked up somewhere else if they have time to like break away and start debating your creative choices or logical choices. Unless yeah. it's like something truly egregious. It's like, no, they're just, you know, the building's in chaos and this hallway, the lights are off because they're, you know, that, you know, our production designer kept setting up, you know, an office under construction hints throughout the opening act, um, throughout the film also to justify like places that could be moody or like the lights don't work or like, you know, the butt plug fight is, in totally staged <laughs> construction site. Like, it's like, oh, there's a construction site here. How do we do this? Because um, we already had done, like, you know, the fanny pack was a fight in an office space. And I was like, well, we can, how do we do another office space fight without making it feel the same? And I was like, oh, we'll just, we'll just have dramatic, low-lit, you know, work lights on the floor. And that's going to be the look for that scene. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a bit, you know, it's, it's a bit cheeky, but it, it's, it was still fun to do. Like, and, and they liked leaning into that. Yeah, I uh, I I would love to talk to you more because like your whole music video and commercial world, uh, I think we could dig into a lot more. But also this film has a lot to talk about. Um, but I have to do another podcast in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have to go now, which is this is the first time I've ever come up against my own schedule, uh, which sucks. But um I'll, I'll end. Hopefully we can have you back on when you, when next time you're yeah. free. I know you've had a pretty rough uh, Sunday and especially working on a TV show right now, but um, well, hope, hopefully I have you back, but I, I do want to end on the same two questions I ask everyone. The first one being, uh, do you remember a, something you've read or maybe a piece of advice that you got? Um, it doesn't have to be the one, but just something that kind of has stuck with you throughout your career as a cinematographer. Um, you know, they used to, yeah, there probably was at some point. Um, I think the one, I think I forget some director once said he was like, think about your choice now, but think about your choice in seven months from now, if it was the right choice. And meaning like, you know, whatever you do on set right now, is it, is it good for now or is it good for later? And that like, you know, when you get to the final product, did you make the right choice? And that comes from different areas. It's a creative thing of like, were you just getting bored of, of how the film looked and you wanted to change it up so you broke the theme? So also like, you should push yourself to for greatness if you can, because seven months from now, you're gonna be like, man, we should have done another take or I should have just turned that fucking light off. Even if it was awkward for the actors, I should have just fucking turn that light off. Um, that's what's kind of been sticking to me lately is the idea of like, you know, don't take the easy path Yeah. <laughs> sometimes. And it's more like, don't take the awkward path. Or you're afraid to take the awkward path of like, I just need to do this one thing. Or like, I should really say we should do another take because I think we need it or something like that. And then, you know, because you got to be like, grit your teeth and be like, seven months from now, I'm going to be thanking myself. But right now I, I'm not happy. Yeah. It's the combo of uh, that thing Fincher said where like the DVD is forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. I mean, he think he said I'm making a film for ten years from now, 
Yeah. You know, that's what his, he's like, I'm not making it for now. I'm making it for to now when people are at a party and they say, Hey, did you see that movie that ends with a head in the box? Yeah. 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 But also the, the thing that you're saying that I, every time I don't do this, I kick myself. He's like, if I have an instinct, I just do it. So like, if it's, you know, simple shit, like if I'm leaving the house, I'm like, am I going to need that? like sticker, maybe I should bring some stickers with me. And I don't, then I find myself in a situation where someone's like, Oh, I love your podcast. Can I have some stickers? Fuck, You know, every time. So I'm sure when you're on set and it's like, I should, you know, whatever, turn off that light or whatever it may be. Uh, yeah. Better to just do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I think. Yeah. Second question. Uh, this is going to be a hard one because of this film, but, uh, it's usually, um, if, Everything. If you're programming a double feature with everything everywhere, what is the second film? Um, you know, they, you know, the the Daniel said, you know, Turning Red, the new Pixar film, is kind of a sister film to this oh, in a way. You know, it's um, um, it's you know, it's a, a story that uses basically an extreme concept to tackle the idea of generational love. Um. And how to how to how to do that, and also make it very entertaining. You know, I think yeah. they're both you know a good a good variation on that. Um, you know, there's sister films kind of funny to this because it's you know it, it's so maximalist. I can't. I'm trying to think of like another film that would be the inverted version of this, like the simplified version of this. I don't know. I mean, you know, the Matrix Turning is Red's obviously the biggest touchdown. But Turning, I think oh, Turning Red. Matrix, I think yeah, that one's very. <laughs> there are some. I mean, do you know? Fuck! I wanted to ask about Bill Pope. Why was he there? <laughs> um, he shot. He shot uh, Shang Chi, and I think Michelle got him a ticket. And Michelle's in Shang Chi. I see. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, I was very, like, very I want to talk to him to too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No one's gonna understand what that means, but I, yeah, I, I was very like he was like sitting like three rows in front of me, and she was like, "And there's Bill Pope." I was like, "Wait, hold on, what?" <laughs> You can get him on the podcast. He's great. He's amazing. I love his interviews. I'd, He's spicy. I'd absolutely love to. All right. Uh, I Yeah. Travis has joined my meeting and it's I haven't started it. All right. I'm going to go. Uh, thanks so All much, right. man, for, especially for the extra time. Uh, and like I said, I'd love to have you back because because your body of work is uh, really um, admirable. I, 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 I am. I don't want to say envious because that sounds creepy, but uh, it's you've, <laughs> you've done a really good job for yourself so far. Thanks for having me on, dude. I really appreciate it. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the F at Art Matbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening.